From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. This podcast is sponsored by Design Within Reach, a modern furniture company founded by and for people who are passionate about design. Become a member of the DWR trade program today for access to the world's largest assortment of in-stock products from Herman Miller, Knoll, Tolix, Emco, Stua, and others, as well as exclusive products available only at Design Within Reach. Visit dwr.com trade for details on how to join. Wendy Goodman is the Poet Laureate of Manhattan's design world. As longtime design editor of New York Magazine, for decades she's chronicled the lives and homes of the city's most interesting people alongside its most exciting artists and makers. I spoke with Wendy about her culture-rich childhood in the city, working for Anna Wintour early on in both of their careers, and why sometimes the best job is the one you're most afraid of. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Design Within Reach's new Upper West Side studio. I am thrilled to have as my guest and our guest tonight, Wendy Goodman, who as, uh, yes, huge round of applause for Wendy Goodman. Yes, absolutely. An iconic figure in our industry uh, and, and the, the design editor of, of New York Magazine. And also, and one of the things that I think is just charming about this event is two native New Yorkers are here tonight to sort of welcome Design Within Reach to its latest New York location. And I, I wanted to start, Wendy... With, with talking a little bit about, about your family, actually. So uh, for, for those of you that might not know, uh, Wendy wrote a, a, a really beautiful book entitled May I Come In? And it, it chronicles how Wendy has covered the, the world of design and, and the world of home throughout her career. And we're going to talk about her career. But, but one of the things that you talk about in your, in your book is that Perhaps the place that was most special to you was your childhood home. That is absolutely true. It was the foundation, of course, of our life. Our mother was a natural-born talent as far as making a home that was cozy and beautiful and welcoming and just sort of the hub of our universe. She had four kids all very quickly. I'm the oldest. They all arrived really, really quickly and um, <laughs> after me. And we, she had a very difficult childhood and she um, wanted to be sure her own family really was tended to in every sort of way. And I think that, you know, that the apartment that we grew up in, and we never moved. A lot of families move a lot, and we always stayed in the same place. And um, to this day, I mean, the, the memory of that apartment is really key to so much. It was everything. Well, so, and, and both of your parents were, were artists, yes. uh, and, and, right? And, and your, your mother was, was painting watercolors and... Her creativity, while we were growing up, she was wanted to do everything. She took us to every museum, every gallery opening, uh, every play, every musical, the ballet. So we were exposed as children to the life of New York City, which was, as you know, a mm. little bit different than it is now because um, the city was sort of raw and it was... I, I, 
if I ever write an autobiography, I'm going to call it Glamour and Grit because the city was so gritty, and I loved that about it. The neighborhoods were neighborhoods with family businesses, and it was glorious. It really fed us in all sorts of creative ways that we didn't know when we were growing up how it would come out in our later careers. Well, and, and your mother gave you a great deal of, of freedom, and, and, yes. right? And she wasn't sort yes. of pushing an agenda of what she wanted no. you all to become. All of no. you went on to become uh, enormously talented and creative <laughs> people in your, in your own fields. The interesting thing, thinking about our parenting, I mean, my father was a surgeon, and um, so as a surgeon, we didn't see very much of him because also when he wasn't surgerying. He wasn't, you know, in the operating room. He was on the golf course. So, um, but he was very, very present, nevertheless. And the thing that we were never asked growing up was, well, what are you going to do? We were never, ever asked that question. And I remember one day sitting in the car um, beside my father. We had a house in Long Island, and in the summer, he would drive to the hospital every day, and sometimes I'd go with him to go into the city. And I remember sitting in the car thinking, I felt the heat of his, his intensity to get to the hospital. He couldn't wait to get to the hospital. And I thought, I think that's what you're supposed to do in life. You're supposed to do something that you really love. You're supposed to do something that you want to get up in the morning and go to that thing, whatever it is. And I felt that that was what I had to have in my life. I didn't know how I would get it, but I felt that you need not just only to work, you need to work with a purpose, a love. A, a, a love and, and, and a passion. And yeah. so at, at first, it, it sounds like you thought acting might, might be that purpose and passion for you. Yes, I yes. did. I did. I thought that. Yes. And, right? Um, that was a moment when I was very young, and I studied very hard. I went to NYU School of the Arts, and I studied with Stella Adler, who almost killed me. Okay, I'll just say that. <laughs> um, Deliberately, or she just... Oh, uh, she would have loved if I had dropped dead. And she'd go, look, she's really an actress. Um, <laughs> that would have been your crowning she achievement. Would, she would have yes. said, and oh, the reason she dropped dead is because I taught her. <laughs> I taught the woman everything yeah. she knows. Um, but I realized getting... I, so I studied very seriously. Yes, I know. You were very committed. And very committed. But then I got out and I started auditioning. And I thought, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing this. I'm not going up with a group of men who are looking at me like I am a piece of meat and oh. going, she's not very pretty. She's not very. And I thought, I, I, I actually can't do this. And I don't yeah. want to do this. Yeah. As much as I love the theater to this very day, I yeah. love going. I love the physical space of a theater. Love it. But I also, what was happening is I thought, okay, now to support myself, what I, I guess I'm a waitress. But, right. but what I was scared, I was so terrified of being a waitress, I was a bus person. I bussed tables. And they said, yeah. well, Wendy, you know, it's time for you to be a waitress. I went, no, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good bussing tables. I like this. I'm happy to clear yeah, everything. I, I like that. So I thought, how's this going to work? I'm just going to bus tables all my life. Maybe I act, maybe I don't act. What's that? So then I thought, no, no, no. I have to figure this out. And then, ding, the phone, literally the phone rang. A miracle happens. Miracle happens. The heavens open. I get a phone call from my friend Alida Morgan, who is working at Harper's Bazaar with Carrie Donovan. And she said, there's a new editor here. She just came from England. 
do you want to come and interview for her uh, to be her assistant? I said, oh, I absolutely do. Yes, yes, yes. I'll be right there. And um, it was Anna Wintour. Yes. You know, I heard that it was actually Anna Wintour. Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. And, and so tell us what that was like. That was really torture. Um, <laughs> it, it, and I know I have to really, really just clarify that Anna was born the way she is now. Anna was so no different from mm. the way she is now. She was authoritative. She was, uh, knew what she wanted. And I thought, how does this woman do this? We'd go on shoots like to Long Island on the beach. It was a location shoot and she'd be in like an eyelet outfit with high heels. And I go, well, what, are we on a different shoe? What is going on here? And I just thought, I am just such a troglodyte. I mean, what am I doing working for her? It's just, but I did learn a lot, of course. Of course you did. And um, suffered greatly, but... At her, at her hands? Did you, did no, you suffer? No, I suffered okay. not because of Anna, but because I was so insecure, and I thought, I should be like her. I, that's how, that's how, right. who I should be right. like. And then I thought, in 100 years, I can't be like her. So I had a nervous breakdown. No, I didn't really. But I just, <laughs> I, felt, I felt so inadequate. But I also felt that I was at Harper's Bazaar. The wonderful Carrie Donovan was the fashion director. And I thought, well, this is sort of like Brearley. It's a girl's. There's all, only <laughs> girls here. And I yeah. thought, I don't want to be in a place where there aren't men. I want mm. men. So I thought, oh, I'm leaving. Um, so I left, and I thought, maybe I should think about acting again. So that lasted three minutes. And yeah, then so, just... so suddenly the bussing tables look, look good for a, for a time. Yeah. You thought you could, I thought, you thought maybe you I'll return. just, you know, maybe I'll get lucky. Yeah. Maybe, because... Oh, if you just hang in there a little yeah. bit longer. Yeah. Okay, but that lasted about three seconds, as three. you say, right? Because you realize, no, 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 that's yeah. not the life for you. Yeah. So, so tell us what, what miracles came along well, next for you. Well, in my career, and Julie Britt is sitting here, Karen Malarkey is sitting here, the, Nancy McKeon is here, amazing friends, Maury Hobson, who Wendy are, has packed the place <laughs> with, with luminaries from the industry, close friends. Well, she, oh, she doesn't show up to something like this without I mean friends in the house, obviously. But I think that I, I just have had the great, great fortune to work with the most extraordinary people. And my whole career, I think, you know, Carrie Donovan, who hired me at Harper's Bazaar, called me. I don't know if she understood what misery I was in, but <laughs> um, she said, I'm at the New York Times. You know, why don't you just come over and write some stories, market them? And, and I went, oh, I said, I can't possibly do that. I don't know how to do that. And she went, Wendy, just do it. So I went, oh, okay. Because I realized then those were the most important words I could ever hear. You must take the challenge. You must step up. You must, must force yourself to raise the bar and to never, ever turn down an opportunity, especially with someone like Carrie, especially with, I mean, the New York Times, I had a byline in the first story I did, and people were going, what? Who, who is this? <laughs> who are you? What, what happened? And I went, I don't know. Yeah. But that was, that was yeah. real luck. And that I finally said, when Carrie said, oh, just do it, I went, okay, I'll do it. So I, I, learned, I learned about you have to overcome your own fear. I mean, which I'm still doing on a daily basis, everything I do. But um, you really have to take... And, you know, you also understand that being nervous and being afraid is a great gift because it pushes you 
to really go further. It pushes you to that uncomfortable place where creative things really happen. Well, and, and, and you've talked about that, and you've talked about how many times in, in your career and in your life you've felt nervous, you've yeah. felt afraid, and unlike most of us that, that turn and, and run from that, you, you've pushed yourself towards that. Well, I've sensed that the opportunities where there's so much fear um, is they are opportunities that secretly I really would like to, to, to take on and to really challenge myself. And I do realize that in the creative world, nothing's secure and nothing is a given. And, you know, you ha every time I do an issue, for instance, I am terrified that I cannot do it, that I won't find the right projects. That Still today. Oh, every issue I do is, is like the first time. It really, really is. Because I think, well, what am I, I you know, because there's such a, you know, all the editors that I work with are so brilliant and they're so exacting. You know, I'm always thinking, can I do it? So, so, t so let's, let's fast forward to how you, how you ended up coming to, to New York Magazine so that we can dive into to what you've been doing there for okay, Karen, all these okay. years. I will Once again, say, she turns to the audience for okay, guidance I'm, I'm looking at on Karen, her own career. I'm looking at Karen Malarkey because Karen Malarkey, when I was hired freelance to do... Anna Wintour was leaving to go to British Vogue. She was at New York Magazine. Anna had hired me to do some freelance stories. Right. When Anna went to British Vogue, Ed Kozner, then the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine, said, Wendy, why don't you come and freelance an entire issue? Mm, I went, right. great, yeah. terrified. <laughs> um, and Karen Malarkey took me out to lunch at a Japanese restaurant right near the magazine on 2nd Avenue, at which point I didn't know Karen very well. And I had just been hired to do this freelance issue. I started to choke on a piece of meat to the point where she had to Heimlich me at our first lunch together. She had to do the Heimlich, save my life, okay? This and here is, she is. This is why you're here tonight. Yeah. This is Karen why you're Malarkey. here. I'm yeah. not kidding. Yeah. And, okay, yeah. so how does... I mean, thank God. Yeah. So I'm sitting at that table. You know what happens after you Heimlich someone. I'm not going to go into it, but oh, it's not of pretty. I mean, I, and I, thought, I didn't want to get into all that, but I mean, yes. Well, I just thought, there goes that job. Fine. <laughs> she choked at lunch, and she, that's it. But anyway, I did the issue, and then Ed Kozner offered me Anna's job. And I, I went, no, thank you. Because that's not stressful, right? Come in and take over from I Anna was, Wintour. Yeah, I just thought, I'm not following in her footsteps, hello, and... I had a freelance career. I was styling for Estee Lauder at the time and doing their national ads and their TV. And I was, so I was a freelance fashion stylist. But then the little buzz, and Ed went, come on. I mean, it's, it's, you should take that job. And then I went home, and other people said, Wendy, you've got to take that job. And I went, I don't really want to take that job. But I thought, yes, I must take that job because it is an opportunity again to expand what you've been doing and and make it work in a way that will be interesting to to me. So I I did it. And and tell us how that turned out. It turned out wonderfully because um, I had I had the most fun doing it. I treated um, being a fashion editor like I was a director, a, a playwright costume designer and a producer because every story I did I thought about the scenario for the models they weren't just modeling clothes they were characters in a story so the time that I was producing fashion I was producing little plays you, you were staging theater yeah I was yeah I was yeah and and so 
Tell us when you made the transition from covering the world of fashion and, and being immersed in that world and suddenly something being sort of woken up inside of you about the world of design and, and, and the world of interiors that, that really interested you. Well, it was a really specific moment. I was uh, taken to the restaurant La Granouille by a wonderful French designer, Pauline Trigère, and she would take me there a lot. And I was enchanted to the point of obsession about this little house in the middle of midtown Manhattan. Like, what was it? How did it get here? So I found out everything I could find out about the house, when it was built, what it was. It was a carriage house for the Platt Mansion, which is now Cartier. And the family that bought that house, the building, was the Masson, Charles Masson's mother, Giselle Masson. And I found out why she bought it. Anyway, the whole story of the family in that. So then, of course, the fire got lit that I want to tell the story. If I, if I sense that, I want to give it back and bring it into the public domain. So it took me a year to get up the courage to say to Ed Kosner, I have a story I'd like to do, but it is not a fashion story. It's an interior design story. And Ed said, well, show me what you're thinking. So at that time, it was Polaroids. You took Polaroids and you showed them. And he said, well, yeah, do it. Let's see. Let's see what you got. So that after I did that story, I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to tell the story of people and their characters through how they live. Well, and, and as, you, as you talked about, as you were starting to cover all of this and, and, and your career, as you've pointed out, began before Instagram and before, yeah. before all of these things were as public as they are to, today. Well, that's so interesting because the accessibility, you know, to, to get access was a huge deal. People were private. There, you know, people did not uh, display their homes. And... Um, when I started out, there was a public phone booth on the street. You had the quarters in your pocket, and you waited <laughs> and waited and waited for someone to get off the phone if you were running late for an appointment. There was, if you wanted to research something, you had to leave the office, go to the library, or go to, you know, meet somebody who maybe had some papers. Or So everything was about research and about time, taking time to find the story. And I think that that's such a valuable lesson that I learned because, of course, now everything's instant and you look at Instagram, which is a great, great thing. But it also is a thing that doesn't tell you quite the truth. So mm. what I find is every single story I do, unless I'm doing a story that's, you know, it's an archival story or it's in another country, I can't get there. But I look at every space that we publish because you have to know what the truth is. You have to know really what that space is about. So I think I've digressed monumentally. From wildly, what you, what, what wildly. You just were asking it, me. Yeah. But, um, but I, I think that when I started my career, there was nothing except the telephone rotary. And um, there was no internet. There was nothing. I was at New York Magazine sitting at my desk when they installed the first fax machine. And I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm 120, and well, that's how old I am. And you look fantastic <laughs> for 120, may I say. We're taking a quick break to remind you to visit DWR's Soho studio during NYC by Design to experience Dome Life, a collaborative, shoppable installation by Design Within Reach 
an LA-based fashion brand entire world that pays homage to geodesic domes. Imagined by entire world's Scott Sternberg, Dome Life speaks to yesterday's tomorrow, the spirit of optimism, and the myth of utopia. On view at GWR Soho Studio, May 17th through the 27th. Visit GWR.com slash Dome Life for more information. You, you have always talked about the fact that you are a beat reporter, and, yeah. and, right? And you are putting on your sneakers and hopping on the subway and going to look for that story and going to look for that space. And right, Absolutely. and and you have throughout your career, you have shared with us spaces that we never would have seen otherwise, and and spaces that are so specific to the individuals living yes. in that space, right? Yes. And that's one yes. of the things that you've really focused in on a space that could only be lived in by yes. by the people that that, that yes. you write it about. I say in the book, one person's heaven is another person's hell, and I think that. The only story that interests me, as Billy Baldwin, I quote him in the beginning of the book, is the most, nothing is interesting unless it is personal. And I really believe in all of our different areas that we work, we're always searching for something that is authentic, something that resonates for people, whether it's you know designing a room or a chair or telling a story to someone. You're looking for an experience that people really will go, I didn't know that, or, I, you know, that's interesting to me. Maybe I want to try that, or maybe I could try a little piece of it. I, I'm so interested in people and their stories, and I think that their stories are so magically told at home. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because of our house when I was growing up and just loving that house so much and knowing how my mother created everything. Um, and her practicality, because at the root of all, all of it was her practicality. It was four kids, it was lots of animals, and, you know, it, was, um, it had to work. And I think the greatest design, of course, has to be functional. If it's only decorative and if it's only to be Instagrammed, it's very one-dimensional. We didn't even talk about the menagerie of animals that you that you had when you were little, right? And four kids and, and a bunch of animals running around the house. And yet, Wendy's mother and father would, would dress for, for dinner every night. So Wendy's father would come home and, and, and put on a smoking jacket to, to, to indicate that the workday was over, right? And well, this sounds dinner. so pretentious, right? <laughs> but I will say that my mother, again, I have to really say that she had a really tough childhood. And I think my mother was living out her fantasy. Like, you know, my husband's going to come home from a hard day at work, and I'm going to be in a, and she would be in a long skirt. <laughs> in a long gown. And, yes. you know, the fire would be going, and the hors d'oeuvres would be there, and I'd be really happy because, you know, that everything looked great to me. But my mother had this sense of ceremony, and she had a sense of, um, you know, making my father happy and making us feel happy. And um, she was also incredibly beautiful. So... Um, I think she enjoyed just making up... They were very independent, my, my parents. They didn't have tribes. They didn't belong to tribes. They, their marriage was very traumatic. He was from a German-Jewish family. My mother was from an Irish Catholic family, so when they got married, it was like, whoa! Um, <laughs> I mean, if you look at my parents, the wet, their wedding pictures, my maternal... My, I mean, my fraternal grandmother, my father's mother, looks like she's at a wake. I mean, it's just... It's just, <laughs> just beside herself with grief. But, um, 
you know, they, they were so independent and they were so um, stylish and they really had an innate sense of style, I will say, even if they didn't change for dinner. They just were incredibly elegant. Exactly. So they, they, were, they were elegant and they were, they were sophisticated and they had this elaborate array of, of friends, yes. right? Uh, some were uh, well-known performers of the day, some were well-known writers of the day. Roald Dahl was a family friend uh, and later a, a correspondent with you. Um, and and how, how did they come to have this sort of circle of, of friends and how did that influence sort of the, the world that, that you went out and explored? Well, I think, it, it, go back to the New York of the 40s, I guess, and 50s, and think about how bohemian and how, what a wonderful mix the city was. It wasn't about money. It was about people were here to do what they loved. They were here to be actors. They were here to be writers. They were here to be... And so my parents also, at the beginning of their lives, had no money. So they would go, you know, to these little restaurants or they'd go to somebody's house and potluck. But they happened to have had these extraordinary friends who then became um, really very prominent in their fields. And um, I have a very, very vague uh, recollection of Ruel Dahl and Patricia Neal's apartment that was near our apartment. And um, I just wish I had photographs of these spaces because, of course, nobody would have thought to take a picture. But um, they just had an... They, you know, their friends were doctors, of course, but writers and musicians and artists and, um, and a very, very diverse group of people. So, again, the tribe was a tribe that... Um, was formed from friendship and from really enjoying being together and all of the kids, because all, they all had kids, so we would be together. So it was really a joyous, yeah. really great thing. So, and, and, and for you, it, it started to create this, this network for, for you, right? Of, yes. of, peop of people that you could call on. And, and so to your point, at a time, no one would think of taking pictures yeah. in, in the private spaces of some of these people, but that was what you started to sort of ask people to, to, to let you come and, and, and do. And well, I when I went to House and Garden, I was asked to join House and Garden. I left New York Magazine because I was doing fashion. I wanted to do something else. I got to House and Garden, and I thought, what am I going to do? I mean, there were editors there who were like Bab Simpson who really knew what they were doing. I did not. So I thought, well, I think what I should do is start with what I know, fashion designers. So I went to all the fashion designers and I said, would you let me do a story on your house? And Jeffrey Bean was the first designer. And I said, I bet you, you have used fabrics in your house that you might have used in your fashion collection, which indeed he had. Mm. So I thought, wow, this is exciting because, and that led me to do more and more of that. So I began with what I knew, which right. was fashion and the designers that I knew, and they opened that world to me, and then that world kind of blossomed. And then people sort of became more, more accustomed to that, that idea, and right? And it, it, it really became a thing. You know, fashion, there are fashion issues now with El Decor and AD, and um, it's, it's a fascinating thing to explore because the way people live creatively tends to sort of seep through all of their... The, the way they express themselves in their lives, absolutely. So you were you were at House and Garden, uh, and then you and then you uh, so House and Garden sadly sort of folded, right. right? And and then you luckily you were brought back into the 
The, the, the weird thing about my career is I have gone back to every publication I've worked for once, twice, or three times. At, at least a few times, just to make sure it it's wasn't the so right place. It's so weird. Yeah. And, uh, Yes. yes. After House and Garden closed, I went to Harper's Bazaar, and um, then I went back to House and Garden a second time. For, for, for less than a year. For eight months. A- eight because months they closed before. it again. Sadly, had to close it again. Which yeah. made me almost lose my mind, because when I was offered <laughs> that job, I said to the person in, you know, the personnel department, I said, you know, I was at House and Garden when you closed it the first time. I don't know that. She said, oh, Wendy, this is so secure. I mean, this is <laughs> That'll never a happen. totally different world yes. you're in. I went, okay. But I, I actually have to tell the truth about it. I did not want to leave New York Magazine. I was so happy there. Adam Moss had just kind of started, and I was just understanding what he was about and what he wanted, and I was like so challenged by him, and I thought, I don't want to leave. But then I thought, well, you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to go to a bigger job, and a blah, blah, and you're supposed to do this. So I kind of forced myself. So that's what pulled you away. You, th- you thought that that represented a bigger job? Or yeah, because d- okay. I was like creative director of House and Garden. Right. But, but, but. House and Garden was... Um, Dominique Browning is so wonderful. She was the editor-in-chief. Tremendous editor. Fantastic. But one thing I noticed, the office was not in the mothership. Mm, it wasn't at Four it Times Square. It was not at Four Times Square. We yeah. were over on Third Avenue, and I thought, that is not a good sign. And sure enough, it was not mm. a good sign. Because yeah. uh, we lost a publisher, and then they never hired a publisher. And I went, uh-oh, this is so writing on the wall. <laughs> but... And then, you know, then, then they pulled the plug. Yes, yes, sadly. Yeah. I, I, I remember it well. I was working at Condé Nets at the time. So, luckily, the, the warm embrace of New York Magazine... Well, the miracle was of Adam Moss. Yes. Literally, I was in the conference room crying and screaming. I actually did scream at Cy Newhouse's guys. I will never be asked to... I mean, but anyway... Um, You're not going back. No, I'm not going back. That door's been closed. But it's closed. But um, I got back to my office, and there was that little light blinking that means you have a message. And it was Adam Moss saying, come and talk to me. And I thought, Adam Moss, who was the the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine for for many, many years, uh, and had a tremendous impact on on your career. He was just, I think, he is one of the most spectacular editors. I cannot say enough about his brilliance, his compassion, his astounding human humanity and he um, has recently left as we all know when we have wonderful um, David Haskell who's brilliant who's working at the magazine and with Adam um, and Adam as Adam Wood wants to challenge himself to do something new and he's the, probably the most genius person in media I, I, we will ever see because he understands something before it happens so to anticipate the future is the gift of, I think, anybody who's, who's working as a creative person in, in that. So, so, so let's talk a little bit about that, because, because under Adam's stewardship, New York Magazine I- I- I expanded dramatically, right? So well beyond the magazine. Let, so let's talk about some of the verticals that were brought into existence under his The genius his of Adam's vision was not just to make it the best print magazine out there, which I think he did, was to understand that the online presence had to grow and had to support the print. And then there had to be a fluid relationship between the online and the print. 
So what he did was he built out these what we call verticals. If you go to our website, nymag.com, you'll see the cut, the strategist, vulture. Um, so those are all verticals that you click onto them, and then there's a whole other magazine there, really. And now what is happening is, so I do a, a weekly newsletter called Design Hunting, and Design Hunting lives within the cut online. So it's not that intuitive, I don't think, because you have to sort of pull down to find design hunting, but worth it to find it. Um, <laughs> worth the effort, yeah. absolutely. Good and, content um, awaits you. And now we're doing videos, bless you. We're doing, uh, I'm doing a video series for the magazine called Interior Lives, which is so much fun. And um, it is, it, 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 so I think Adam's whole push was to expand on what you know and what you did and take it into your time now and take it into the future. Well, and, and so one of the things that, that he did for, for you was to really give you uh, a, very much of a, a free hand with that, yes. right? Yes, because I started doing the online, the design hunting online before, I was one of the first editors to do it, to do an online, you know, weekly newsletter. And it started in a very small way, and I, you know, it was nothing. But then it grew and grew and grew. So yes, and I'm so grateful that I started doing it when I did. And that, I, you know, I, again, the interior, the, the video started, but someone said, well, just, if you have an idea, just do it, produce it. And I went, okay, I don't know how to do that, but I'll figure that out. I'll do it. And so we've done like 14, and we're in our new season now. I just came back from L.A. We did three, we filmed three uh, videos out there. So I think you always have to embrace the time you're in. You have to be part of your, the time. And that's how things keep evolving and rolling. So um, I'm thrilled to do. I mean, the, just the more work I can do, the better. If, if you haven't seen Interior Lives, they are, they are charming videos of, of Wendy arriving at, at people's home. The, the Amy Sedaris video has, has gotten over 2 million views already. Wendy is quite a YouTube sensation. And we're pretty sure that the next flashing light on Wendy's phone is going to be Netflix calling with, with an offer uh, for, for Wendy's gorgeous. series. So, so look for that. You heard it here first. Um, but, but you have embraced that change. You and I know somewhat reluctantly, candidly, you're like, digital, what is this? And social media, what is that? But but you have gone right along with it and realized it is another opportunity to tell that story in, in, in a different way. Well, I think that the, all of our challenges today in any business that you're in is, is this very, very quickly changing landscape. It's like, how do we do what we do best in this new world? And I think you've got to keep pushing yourself to explore what you don't know, to explore rather than like, you know, I, it's so easy because you don't know to say, I really don't like X. Well, it's 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 better for you to think, let me explore X and let me see how I could, because I'm constantly saying, I mean, I'm doing a story now for the cut online and I, it's, it's a story I wanted to do in print that I'm shooting next week and I, I don't know how it's really going to work. But to f figuring out how it's going to work is the great fun because it, there's a way to do it. I just don't know quite what it is, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> I mean... I better, but um, and, and and soon because I'm, I'm yeah. guessing there's a deadline. 
Well, Monday. Okay, yeah, Monday. So, okay, you know, no, yeah. no pressure. And yet she made time for this. You know, so nice, right? Yeah. Even, though, even though that's looming large for her, that story undone. But one of the, one of the sort of overarching themes of, of the business of home is, is about the, the changes and challenges in our, in our industry today. And obviously, you've seen the home world change so dramatically over the years, and, and I wonder if you could speak uh, a, a little bit to that, and, and in, in a way, the, the changes and challenges in the magazine world have, have, have sort of been on a very similar track. Well, I think there's so many aspects of that. I mean, the millennial audience for things. Uh, millennials tend to, I think, um, they move very quickly, and their, their sense of home is maybe a little bit different than another generation because they do move a lot. So with that in mind, it's, you know, I think design, I mean, I think we're in the perfect environment because there are pieces that you always need and always want. And what are those pieces? And I think for people who don't know where they're going to be in a year, maybe, or don't know, you know, I think great design always resonates with people. Whether it's the way you sit in a chair and it's really comfortable or it looks, it just adds a silhouette in, in your rather bland, modern, you know, nothing apartment because that's the way the building is. <laughs> but you can, you can add a charm and you can add an, a moment of beautiful color and you can add a moment of sensuality. So I think that design is focusing now on what is special, what will bring as Marie Kondo says, what will spark joy? Because, you know, life is hard and it's fast and you need a sanctuary. Your home is your sanctuary. So the business of home, I think, is looking at how do you deliver those qualities that pe we're, we're still people. We still need the nourishment of beautiful things. We still need the nourishment of having a great place for our families and friends to talk when they come to our house. A table, to me, is the most invaluable piece of furniture because every great thing happens around a table. The meals, the conversations, and don't you notice that when you go to a dinner party and everybody's really engaged in conversation, and then the host or hostess says, well, let's get up and have coffee, it stops. You never pick that up again because when you're sitting around that table, there's something kind of magical that happens. Um, so... I don't know that I've at all addressed what you asked me. But you, you've got to get so much better at answering these questions, yeah, really. really. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I've, that I've always found fascinating about your coverage of the home world is that you have so much freedom in your, in your beat. Right. I, I, at one point, I was asking you sort of what what New York Magazine had directed you to cover, and you basically said that you've never been giving a direction. So, it, so it's really what what's interesting and engaging to to you at, at any given time. And I wonder what what you are finding interesting t today that that you're going out and 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 seeing what's what's getting your attention and and curiosity because you have this intense curiosity to find yeah. that story, yeah. right? I think, always looking for that surprise, I'm always looking at new talent. That is something that really excites me, is what are the new, the new crop, the new generation, what are they doing, what are they thinking about, where are they getting their references? And I think that, um, because, new, again, New York Magazine is not a shelter magazine. It's a news culture slash read. And so I felt like I had the great freedom to 
to um, showcase design, because that was the only design story, still is. But also, you want to engage people who are not design you know, aficionados. You want, so you're telling them stories. So any, uh, what I'm always looking for is a story. What is, is appealing to me now is this sort of crazy salad of eclectic, I can't even say Eclecticism? It. Yes, thank there you. There you go. Um, and when I was in Milan at the furniture fair, I saw all these really exciting sort of new ways of, of rethinking things we thought we knew, like a chair or just the combination of colors. And um, I was, again, in private homes, so excited and so turned on by things I had never seen before. And that, so it's hard to say exactly what that is, but I, I'm working on doing a story on a young designer, Brock Forsblom, who has an incredible way of putting things together that are really layered and rich. And it's sort of like, I don't want to say new Mongiardino, but he's someone who sort of expresses this idea of visual luxury, that you can just bathe in colors and textures. And I think that's feeding people's eyes and souls right now. You often have introduced us to people that we had never seen before and, and people's work. How, how are you finding out about new talent? And how are, they, how are they reaching you? And is it harder today to reach you? Um, it's always easy to reach me. I answer every email, <laughs> every phone call, although nobody calls anymore. Um, everybody. <laughs> but I just think communication is key. I, I, I love meeting new designers, new people. I love scouting. Um, and I think that every party I go to, every dinner I go to, I'm, I'm looking who's there, I'm talking to them, I'm asking questions. I think just communicating, and I think really, I'm always on the subway, as everybody knows, and I'm always scouting. So um, one thing leads to another, mm. you know, if you, and, and so often I'm doing a story, and then I say, who designed that? And they go, oh, don't you know it's that young, and I go, oh, no. So just asking questions, and that's what I tell students when I mentor. I go, internet is great, but you cannot find the goods sitting at a desk. You've got to get out, you've got to shake somebody's hand, look them in the eye, talk to them, ask them questions. Yeah, and, 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 and did you find the, so the, the trade fair in, in Italy, uh, Salone, is one of the most it's magical. so fantastic. It's massive, it's really challenging because you really realize you cannot see everything. But it's just a bouquet of, of great design. And it's a bouquet of all these creative people. The whole city is, is celebrating design. So everywhere you go, they're celebrating design. It's just fantastic. Do you get a sense of uh, a, a direction that things are, are moving in? So often when you're, when you're at Salone, you feel like, oh, I'm seeing things that I'm going to see back in the U.S. probably in a, a year or two, right? I mean, well, I think what's so exciting now is the technology behind materials because, you know, always at Salone, the lighting, when you go out to the fairgrounds and you go into the, the Euro Luce, I mean, the lighting is so beyond belief because of all the technology of how you can make materials that perform. So I think performing furniture and performing materials is going to be in our life because I think technology is, is really ruling and pushing the envelope for everything. So I think that um, that's probably going to be the greatest, greatest. And, you know, virtual reality, I don't know where that's going to take us, but definitely it's out there. And um, what's the other one? There's virtual and there's... Augmented, augmented, augmented reality, yes. 
that is just going to be so huge. Because I don't know if you saw a movie called She or Her. But in that movie, he, he comes home and this screen pops up. And it's a sort of invisible screen. But, and I thought, wait a minute. So you mean we could visit our friends in Paris in our living room? Because their living room could pop up. Or we could yeah. say, I want to be in a jungle tonight. And then a jungle pops up. So there's so much potential in this world of just things we can't even imagine now because of technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I know that some people in the audience would probably like to ask some, some questions. So uh, up, up here in the front row, yes. Uh, the question was, am I working on a second book? I'm thinking about a second no, it would be my fourth It'd book. It would be your fourth book, yeah. But in order for me to do a book, I have to be struck by lightning because it's so hard to do a book. I'm hoping that I will find the, the next book soon because I'd like to start working on it. Yeah, hi. Hi, Wendy. Um, congratulations always. I admire you so much because you're, of your curiosity and also your lack of judgment about what the changes are meaning in everyone's life. It's a time... You know, to move forward, and and um, and God bless you. You know, you 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 enhance everything to the point that I'm excited all the time. Whenever I look at your posts on Instagram, I'm so for that. I I think it's so important that we have that right in our hand, and and we're able to learn something every day. I mean, we we've always been involved in style yeah. design, people that do it, that gets you on their their train, and you got to follow, and you don't know where you're going, but you're right. drawn to it, right. and you don't know why or where it's going, but it's just, you know, it's our life. It's our lives, and we can't help it. Well, I think, I think, thank you, Julie, and I think the thing that I, again, tell students who go, what do I, I don't know how to, I go, just connect to what you love and what turns you on and what, because that gives you energy, and it gives you the um, opportunity to keep expanding your energy. Right. And just begin, to just begin somewhere, because it will lead you to where you should be, right. where, where you want to be. Does anybody else have a, a question that they want to ask? Because I, I think just to pick up on your point, one of the things that, that makes Wendy so extraordinary and, and one of the reasons that we are so lucky to have Wendy covering the, the, the home world in, in the way that she does is the, is the energy and the passion and the excitement that she brings, as, as, you, as you saw tonight. She's a, she's a, a, a brightly burning flame and um, and and she's always willing to. You you heard how busy she is. She's got this story that she's got to do on Monday, and she doesn't even know how it's going to come together, right? But she came out to to talk with us to, tonight um, because this is what she this is what she loves. But this is a privilege. And, I really well, cannot thank you enough for inviting me. I love the business of home. I think what you do is amazing, and it's it's just it's a privilege for me. I am so lucky to be doing what I do. And I'm lucky to be able to share it with you, and it's really a privilege for me. I cannot thank you enough. Well, you're you're very generous, and and there's a there, there's a question in the in the back. So first of all, I loved every minute of the interview tonight. You know, starting from your childhood and going forward was, I think, riveting for everybody, and and uh, an insight into you, which people don't normally get. One of the themes that I caught throughout the night was the concept of yes, and many of your examples were yes to a, something I didn't think I could do. But sometimes I believe it's yes to something that's below what I can do, but I do it anyway. So I just want to hear your uh, philosophy and to share this with all the people listening on the, on the podcast about great, the word I'm, of yes. I such am a great so question. happy that you raised that question because I will say when I started my career, I was sweeping floors, packing suitcases, running errands. There wasn't anything I 
wouldn't do, couldn't do, or was volunteering to do. You can, there is no job that is not worthy of you giving your effort, putting your shoulder to the wall, and, and I mean, the idea that anything is not worth your time. I just say, again, to students, you have, even if you make a mistake saying yes, I mean, and you say to yourself, that's not what I want to do, it leads you to something else. But you cannot find it if you don't take the risk. Uh, yes, another, another question, another question right behind you. Hi, um, I'm just wondering out of all the multitude of homes that you've seen, is there one that stood out that just was particularly breathtaking that you can talk about? Well, I, the, the home that sort of set me on fire, and I, I, it took me a very long time to actually record it, was Richard Avedon's personal space. And I remember the first time I went there, and all of his walls, and I mean floor to ceiling, were bulletin boards. So he could tack up anything he cut out of a magazine or a newspaper with also very, very important art and photographs. And it just literally blew open my mind because I thought, wait a minute, there are no rules. You can do whatever you want in your house. <laughs> and um, to this day, I just say, you know, his, the, the, his curiosity was literally on the walls. Everything that interested him and he observed, he put on the wall. So that house, I have to say, is, is one of the ones that affected me the deep, deepest. Well, and, and I feel that so many of the projects that you've shared over the years drove home that, that message, yeah. that there, yeah. there aren't rules, and, right. and make it personal, and make it about yourself, and, and some of Gloria Vanderbilt's extraordinary, I mean, the, the, that you also share in the book, un unbelievable and, and completely personal. And, and again, you, you focused on so many people that it, it could only be their home, okay. right? And, and, and those were the things that interested you the most, not the people who were putting on the home for a show or... Right? No. Or to, yeah. I mean, if you go into a home and there are absolutely no books, I sort of think, hmm. <laughs> I mean, Wendy runs screaming out of the room. One book. Um, or, you know, I, you just can tell that no one's home. I mean, you know. Literally and figuratively. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it's been an extraordinary privilege for us to, to spend time with you, Wendy. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. And will you please you so uh, give much. a big hand so for much. Wendy Griffin. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, tell a friend about the show, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again to our sponsor and our producers, you can find us at businessofhome.com or on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week.